This is Set Aside Some Time, an MSPN podcast, and it's brought to you by the National MSP Network, or MSPN for short. And now, on to the episode. Thank you for setting aside some time with us today. I am Jennifer Shemansky. I am the host for this month's podcast and a co-chair of the webinar and the communications committee. And joining me this month is my co-chair of the communications committee, Rasa Fumagali. Rasa is an Illinois licensed attorney and the director of MSP compliance for Synergy Settlement Services. Rasa and her team provide plaintiff attorneys with consultations to address Medicare secondary payer compliance issues that may arise in connection with the client's personal injury or workers' compensation cases. Prior to joining Synergy, Rasa worked at a workers' compensation insurance defense attorney in the Chicago area. She spent the last 14 years focusing on the MSP, Medicare Secondary Payer Compliance Issues. Rasa's knowledge, experience, and passion for navigating the intricacies of the MSP Act, supporting regulations and CMS, provide valuable guidance to her clients at all stages of the discussion. Welcome, Rasa. Thank you, Jennifer. And also joining us today is Barry Miyagi. Barry is the partner at Taylor Porter and the practice group leader for Taylor Porter's Medicare Secondary Payer Compliance Group. She spends most of her time um, advising clients in liability, workers' compensation, and no-fault matters on MSP compliance-related settlement and trial strategy. She also glides clients through the mandatory Section 111 reporting obligations. Barry has also authored MSP compliance best practices drafted and argued MSP Act motions, and served as the lead MSP Compliance Counsel in large multi-party cases. Barry and her team resolve MSP issues in a single plaintiff and multi-party cases. She also handles global lien resolutions on behalf of her clients. Barry actually has over 25 years of litigation experience defending asbestos and other personal injury cases, and she's handled large-scale litigation and settlement documents. As a result of her experience, she brings a unique perspective to the MSP compliance issues. Welcome, Barry. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. We are. And so today, um, we are actually going to talk about some liability and MSP issues, but we thought we'd actually do that in a little bit of a different way than we usually done on the podcast. We're actually going to walk through some scenarios today. So I thought we'd start maybe um, with a fact pattern and we could kind of jump in and talk through those. So our first pa- uh, fact pattern, we have a Mr. Jones and he is a traveling employee when he's involved in a motor vehicle accident on 1-1 of 2019. Why poor Mr. Jones was working on 1-1, I don't know, but here you go. So he suffered severe injuries to his neck that rendered him a quadriplegic. Jones filed both a work comp case and a third party liability claim against the driver of the vehicle that hit him. The liability attorney wants to settle the liability case for $2 million, but is concerned about the compliance issues. The comp carry currently has a $400,000 lien and will have a future offset against, excuse me, ongoing injury related medical bills. The work comp carrier's offset is 75% of the future medical limited by the liability settlement amount. Once that offset ends, the work comp carrier is then fully on the hook for the future medical. Jones was awarded social security disability benefits in our scenario, and he is actually now a full Medicare beneficiary. So when you hear that scenario, Rasa, what's the first thing that you're thinking about? 
Well, the first thing that I'm thinking about is whether the plaintiff's attorney, because I am consulting with the plaintiff's attorney and the plaintiff during this sort of fact pattern. You know, we I start talking about, well, you want to try to wrap up the workers' comp future medical issue in connection with the liability MSA issue, the liability MSP compliance issues. If you did not have this workers' comp component, my general discussion would be, well, is this a settlement that includes a component of future medical? And then we would talk about, you know, the pros and cons of various approaches, how much or how little risk the plaintiff wishes to assume in terms of Medicare questioning their responsibility for post-settlement injury-related care. When you have a workers' comp component to it as well, you know, you do have a situation where the workers' comp carrier in most jurisdictions is going to be responsible for reasonable, necessary, and related medical for life. When you have a situation where you're trying to negotiate the um, workers' comp lien for the past medical for indemnity benefits that were paid, you know, you're thinking about, well, what is it that I have to pay back to the insurance carrier in the workers' comp case? Well, when you're thinking about negotiating that, you can also throw in, well, what would the comp carrier be on the hook for in terms of future injury-related medical? So one of the discussion points is going to be, why don't you get a Medicare set-aside in the workers' comp space to see what the injury-related Medicare-covered future treatment would be. I also suggest that they also get a projection for the non-Medicare injury-related stuff that the workers' comp carrier would be on the hook for. For example, in this fact pattern, you know, likely you're going to have um, assisted living, you know, a nursing home down the road or something that wouldn't be covered by Medicare, but that the comp carrier would be on the hook for. So once you establish what the future medical is going to be, you can then look at, well, what would the offset be for the comp carrier? You know, what is it that they might have to shell out in the future? And wouldn't it be a good idea to try to get the comp carrier ideally to waive their lien and close out future medical through a dollar or whatever appropriate contract might work in that particular jurisdiction? You can also get Medicare to sign off on whatever that MSA number is because you could submit the workers' comp MSA proposal to the workers' comp review contractor in connection with the workers' comp case with the understanding that the settlement really is a waiver of the lien plus a dollar. So the waiver of the lien, that dollar amount is something that's factored into in deciding whether or not the review threshold is met. So Whenever we have these cases that do have a workers' comp component and a liability component, I think it really makes good sense to try to think about it in a very global sort of way. So do you have, how, how do you address these, John and Barry? So my question actually, Rasa, before we get to that is, uh, I guess it's kind of related to what your question is, is how are you functionally doing this? So you kind of laid out the MSP part of, of what needs to happen or what potentially needs to happen. How are you guys having those conversations? You know, um, Barry, you're actually handling the cases. Rasa usually come in as a consultant. How are you kind of directing, you know, those plaintiff attorneys to this is how you should start this or this is how you need to do it? Because, of course, as you mentioned, there's there's the adjusters, there's the defense attorney for the comp carrier, there is you. So with all of the parties, you know, kind of what is your thought on, on how you get this going? Well, the way that I get this going is I talk to the plaintiff's attorney, who is the 
usually representing this individual in the liability case. They're not always representing them in the workers' comp case. So if there is another attorney involved, a workers' comp attorney for the plaintiff for the injury victim, I suggest that we actually have a, you know, a settlement call that has all the attorneys on it, you know, where we have the comp carrier, comp carrier's attorney, we have the workers' comp attorney on there, we have the liability attorney on there. And then we talk about, you know, well, here's the benefit if you take this to CMS and you get a CMS determination. Here's the downside if you do it, you know, so we can all make sure that we're on the same page when it comes to avoiding post-settlement injury-related expenses being shifted to Medicare, where we're also talking about, you know, just because the MSA number would be this, you workers' comp carrier, look at all this other money you are going to be blowing after any sort of offset is exhausted. So there really isn't a reason why this should be adversarial. So, you know, the thought is, let's get everybody on the same page and let's sit down and talk about it. So that's part of the consulting that is associated with the work that I do. Yep. So Barry, what's been your experience in, in kind of getting all of those parties together and having those conversations? So Jen, that's a, that's a great question. A lot of times you will see attorneys working in a vacuum. So you'll see the liability care, the liability attorney, the plaintiff's attorney, almost hesitant to step their toe into the workers' comp arena. And it is so important that everybody get together before there is a settlement. Uh, as Ross is saying, you get together before so that you can start coming up with that strategy on how you handle both cases. That is really what is in the, is in the best interest of the plaintiff and the beneficiary, because you can address things beforehand rather than walking into a settlement, coming out with an agreed upon settlement number, and then having to work backwards to address all of those issues. Most defendants are very savvy. They're very sophisticated. They understand the relationships between workers' comp and liability. They are going to demand that those issues be addressed in a release, whether it be liability or comp. So it really is much easier if you address those up front. And I think, um, Ross, as long as we've been hosting the podcast and, and doing webinars um, through the communications committee at, at MSPN, that has been a theme that, that we have tried to kind of push out across the board and uh, even through comp. But I would, I would maybe say that even on the liability side, it's just so much more important that you have these conversations up front that, that Barry indicated. Comp, mm -hmm. is, as we've always talked about, has a process and people know that needs to be dealt with. And I just don't know that we are there on the liability side. And so, as Barry said, the earlier that, that everybody can come together and start talking through these issues just makes the whole process move faster. And certainly the settlement process move faster. And that, of course, inures to everybody's benefit. For sure. I, you know, I think some of the issue is that liability attorneys may, may not necessarily fully appreciate the comp carrier's offset against future medical. So in discussions that I've had, they're thinking, well, you know, this person will just bill Medicare for this injury-related treatment after the liability case and the workers' comp case is settled. And really, that's not the case. So they should have a notion of, well, what is the 25% or, excuse me, the 75% of the future medical that might be coming out of this settlement? So, you know, if Medicare is actually being billed for these payments, you know, it's quite possible that at some point they're going to say, hey, this is an overpayment. You know, we should not be doing this. So there are a lot of different things to think about, which actually makes it 
from an MSP compliance nerd perspective, you know, very interesting to sort out the best way to address this. Right. So um, we've been talking a lot about the future piece of this. How about the liens? What kind of issues have you run into on the liens? Have there been, you know, um, problems when you're working through these? What have you been finding? Well, let's start with you, Ross, and then we'll, we'll jump over to Barry. Yeah, I was just going to say that when you do have this workers' comp component, you know, if we're talking about a settlement that has the workers' comp piece that has the liability piece, usually the plaintiff isn't going to be having issues in the workers' comp space because, you know, until the case settles, the comp carrier in an accepted case is making payment of everything, or they're going to be dealing with the CRC, you know, so that really hasn't come up for me. But I suspect, you know, in um, the other fact pattern that we have here, I know that is a really big topic. Barry, any any thoughts on the on the lean piece on this case? You know, again, I, I think one of the themes that that I harp on is not working your case in a vacuum. And a lot of times, we'll have a plaintiff who will come to us, and and, and we'll learn, you know, plaintiff says that they have, of course, a comp carrier involved. And plaintiff will tell us that they have one insurer. And then sometimes we find out later down the road that plaintiff, in fact, had additional insurers. So I think it's important. Ross's fact pattern is limited and she's figured out who her insurers are. But in many cases, we'll learn as we're working through a settlement that there are additional insurers out there with very strong reimbursement rights. And those really have to be dealt with. And it's always best if, the, if those are discovered beforehand. And so that actually, I think, um, um, really transitions us to that second fact pattern where we have some of that going on. So unless you guys had anything that we needed uh, to talk about on the on this fact pattern, we'll jump over to the next one. And the only thing I want to comment is that you should, as Barry pointed out, don't look at your case in a vacuum. Whoever it is that you're representing, it's always better to take a comprehensive sort of step back, look at all the different players, all the different issues, because you're going to get the best result that way. Before settlement is knocking on your doorstep. <laughs> okay, so let's try a new fact pattern. So in this one, we have a Mr. Davis, and he is a 64-year-old man with ESRD. So he had surgery for a kidney removal. Um, at the time, he was employed and on his employer's insurance. But post-surgery, he developed sepsis. And within one month, he lost both of his legs. So he is now a bilateral amputee. Here, we have the plaintiff suing four different defendants. And we are five years post the surgery. And the case is being mediated. The case resolves for $2 million, but that is less than 5% of the actual case value. So um, if we're at mediation and the parties are aware of this health insurance policy through the plaintiff's employer that was, in time, that was there at the time of the surgery, and then they, we later determined that ERISA plan, what are our concerns on this case, Mary? So... Jen, this was a really interesting case. I am usually working a case from the defense side, almost almost always for a liability carrier. And as you mentioned for our fact pattern, in this case, the parties proceeded to mediation. Plaintiff knew that she was insured by her employer at the time of the incident. However, after settlement, we discovered that 
plaintiff had some additional policies. So plaintiff in this case actually had more than one Medicare Advantage plan. So plaintiff moved on to Medicare. Um, so CMS or original Medicare covered plaintiff, and then plaintiff uh, maybe tested a couple of different Medicare Advantage plans. Mm -hmm. So plaintiff had an ERISA plan, plaintiff had Medicare, and plaintiff had two different Medicare Advantage plans, all by the way of who had paid some incident related expenses. So this case presented a couple of challenges. And by working this from the plaintiff's side, I experienced those challenges firsthand. So there were really three things that stood out to me in the case. Um, we have multiple insurers with reimbursement rights and you know, the importance of identifying those insurers and what they think they are owed, what they think the reimbursement value is, is super important because if that is not identified and we're dealing with a settlement where plaintiff is receiving far less than case value, we may put plaintiff in a situation where the net recovery to the plaintiff could be greatly reduced by virtue of the amounts that are owed to the insurers. Um, we're also, it's really important to understand going into a mediation, what type of insurer are we dealing with? Because that determines not only what are their reimbursement rights, how strong are their reimbursement rights, but for example, who do they have a reimbursement right against? Do they have a right against plaintiff and plaintiff counsel, or do they have a right against defendant? So by way of example, using this case, we know Medicare and Medicare Advantage plans have a right against all of the parties potentially, um, but we also know they will, they will generally reduce for procurement cost. And we also know that there, if there's an equitable reason for a reduction, they will typically do that. And sometimes they'll even grant a waiver. Um, by contrast, look at the ERISA plan. And although this is a MSP podcast, we have to remember that we always wanna work globally, not in a vacuum. So we've gotta understand what potential liens or reimbursement rights are out there. In this case, the plaintiff had a self-funded ERISA plan. So that means federal law applies, uh, federal law preempts, state law. Um, when we pulled the plan documents and looked at the plan documents, there was no reduction for procurement costs. That plan language was very strong. And there, were no, there was no reduction for equitable factors. So the plaintiff had a challenge here because what we learned was going into the mediation, the insurer quoted a number that was actually three times less than what the insurer quoted post-mediation. So there was a real challenge here on trying to figure out how to resolve the issue. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. The third thing that really stood out to me was all of the parties going into a settlement or a mediation really need to talk about what they're reporting to Medicare. As we know, plaintiff and plaintiff lawyers typically in a liability case open their own CMS case file, a little different from a workers' comp case. And plaintiffs, of course, report an injury date, they report the injuries. If defendant comes back in a Section 111 report and reports a different date of incident, we may see multiple case files open. If defendant comes back later and reports different injuries, especially substantial injuries, what plaintiff thought was the reimbursement number might be drastically different if defendant comes in behind and reports different injuries. 
And finally, I think there should always be a discussion on the timing of Section 111 reporting. So plaintiffs should get out there and talk with defense. When do you plan to Section 111 report? Because in this case, two of the defendants actually reported the case before settlement documents were signed and before the case was funded. So think about this. Plaintiff actually received a demand from the CMS before plaintiff had funds to pay that demand. And of course, that demand was due in 60 days. So we can break that down and talk about that. But those were the three challenges in, in that case. So I, let's work kind of backwards and talk about the, the Section 111 thing for uh, peace. And, and we just talked in the previous um, scenario about how important it is to start talking about these issues early. And um, I just have always kind of said this Section 111 reporting, I think, is so much more difficult on the liability side than it is on the work comp side, because I just you, you don't often see people, at least I don't, from my experience, talking through the Section 111 issue. And you're right, the dates become so important. The body part, what is being reported for the coding is becomes so important because it has such an impact, not only, and we'll talk through uh, the, the lean pieces, but also for that Medicare beneficiary post-settlement. And so I just, uh, if there's one thing I, I think the industry itself needs to focus on is, and I think this will naturally happen once the civil monetary penalties and, the, you know, we've seen increased chatter about this, but I don't know, Rasa, your thoughts on that, that reporting piece just concerns me so much on the liability side. You know what, Jen, so part of what Synergy does is, you know, we really are trying to reach out to plaintiff's attorneys to let them know how important it is to have a discussion about these potential Medicare Secondary Payer Act implications in their Medicare beneficiary settlements or in the settlements where a person is going to be on Medicare, you know, in the relatively near future. There isn't any reason why a plaintiff, plaintiff's attorney and a defense counsel should not be able to work out, you know, what the date of the injury is. But I think part of the problem is a lack of understanding of how important this really is. So as part of the consultation that we do, you know, I'm always talking about, you know, the three different components of MSP, conditional payments, Section 111 reporting, and futures. So once a plaintiff's attorney is actually familiar with you know, what it is you should be seeking, you then have to make sure that the defense attorney fully gets it because usually they're kind of removed from the RRE that's actually doing the reporting. So sometimes the defense attorneys really are kind of blasé about it, you know, in terms of why this matters. But if you are on the same page with the reporting by, you know, if the plaintiff knows what the defense is going to do, your life is going to go so much more smoothly. So we do talk about it, John. We're just trying to educate the bar out there. And and Barry, I'm thinking that same thing. You said you usually come in on the defense the defense side on the liability side. And I know you're you're probably way more steeped, I would guess, than the average um, kind of defense attorney on the liability side. What are you seeing, kind of, from your brethren on that defense side? Have you seen, you know, in the last year, for instance, more chatter about this Section 111 and them understanding how impactful that is on the case itself? Absolutely. And so, Jen, let me tell you that as what as when I represent the defendants, working with Rasa would be an absolute dream for me because she and I would have a great understanding of the issues that we needed to tackle together. And I think we would have all of the parties 
aligned on timing and what needed to be reported. Um, in, in this case, you're right, Jen, we actually had not a self-insured defendant, but we had four defendants who were actually insured by insurance companies. And layer on top of that, they all had their own administrators handling their claims. And so there was a lack of communication because the issues on what was being reported and timing was discussed shortly after the mediation. But what happened is, of course, some way and somehow two defendants actually decided to report those cases before there was were signed settlements and before there was funding. I'd like to tell you, Jen, what happened, you know, just fact pattern with that, because it's really eye opening, I think, for both sides of the fence. Um, Medicare actually, after one of those Section 111 reports was issued, Medicare sent a letter to the plaintiff advising that it learned that there was a settlement and asking if the payment summary was in fact valid. And so that, of course, came to me. I immediately responded to the letter. I explained that the payment summary was, in fact, valid. Okay. And I explained that the case was not, there were no settlement documents signed yet, but there would be. And also explain that the settlement was not funded. I then attached to that the recent alert from the CMS. Remember that alert that says, uh, it talks about timing on Section 111 reporting. Mm -hmm. And if you're not ready to fund a settlement, then either don't report or at the very least, if you're going to be outside of the 30-day window on funding, go ahead and include a funding delay date in that Section 111 report. So I sent all of that up to the CMS thinking they're going to get this and they're going to at least give her more to him more time to pay. And I received a form letter response, which simply said, we've received your response and you failed to show us that the payments are not related. And of course that was not That's at fine. all related to what I sent. So, you know, once there's a big takeaway here when we're working a case, either on plaintiffs or defense side, and we know we have an issue that is either somewhat new to CMS, like the funding delayed issue, or somewhat unique, we need to think about, does CMS have a form letter to address this? Because what I learned was that because CMS had no form letter, I received a form letter. But when I escalated up and went up the ladder to CMS and said, please help me, we know, we know this issue has to be addressed. CMS actually came back and said, you're correct. You're, we're sorry, you got a form letter. We're gonna issue a custom letter. And so a custom letter came out saying exactly what needed to be done. Now, this is another takeaway. I thought CMS would defer to plaintiff on this and accept plaintiff's version of the facts. CMS did not do that. CMS said, look, you need to go to the defense who Section 111 reported. And before we do anything to delay the payment here, you have to get defense to admit to us that they either prematurely reported or that the settlement is not funded and they need to plug in a funding delay date. So I actually went to the defense, asked that they please correct the Section 111 report, asked that they put me in touch with their administrators, and that was eventually done. However, in the meantime, because I did not know if they would respond favorably to me um, and I did not know how much time I had working through one of the other lien issues, 
I filed a first level appeal because I received a demand, right? right? And did not have a lot of time on that. So I filed a first level appeal. And in doing so, by the way, that was also denied with a standard form denial letter. So I had to escalate that up as well. So this eventually worked out, but the importance of knowing when you have a unique issue that you can't use your form letter uh, and you can't, you just can't rely upon the usual procedures. You've sometimes got to step outside of the box and think in advance, how is CMS going to respond to this? We can't always predict what they're going to do, but thinking through those issues is important. I just, the the thing that I find uh, funny, interesting about your thing is uh, as we've been dealing with liability clients, it's always getting the, the reporting done in a timely manner when they do the settlements. I'm so surprised on this case, we were talking about people who are actually filling that TPAC information out before you had reached the settlement or they had written checks on it. That's That hasn't been, in my experience, um, something that we've seen on the liability side. I don't know, Rasa, if you how much you see that from your point of view, but that's just not something that I usually encounter. Usually we're doing the, hey, you did the settlement. You need to make sure you get it in in a timely manner. Yeah. So what I have seen is that people are confused by what the TPAC date is because the TPAC date is specifically defined, you know, in the uh, Section 111 thing is, you know, it's the date that the settlement agreement is signed or if you need court approval, the date that you have court approval. So they have all these, different scenarios. So sometimes you have people thinking that their settlement agreement is the date where they were at the mediation hearing and they were just kind of, ah, I think we can do it. So, you know, you have to really think about these issues and the frustration that I'm sure that Barry's client must have felt with, you know, having to essentially shake CMS and say, hey, read what I wrote. Do not send me this non-responsive letter, you know, is just so very frustrating. So, of course, I've got to know what happened in terms of the future medical there with that case, because this is an amputee that's going to be needing stuff. So, did you know, I know how I would have addressed it. So, I'm curious to see how that shook out if it did. Rafa, that's a that's a great question. And so, as we discussed, they were very limited settlement funds. Right. And there were there were lots of discussions on is there enough money for a Medicare set aside? Should there be a Medicare set aside? Should the Medicare set aside, if there is one, be submitted to CMS for approval? And so, at the end of the day, when looking at the case, there really was not a lot of money left over for a Medicare set aside. However, in an abundance of caution, the decision was made to go ahead and get a small Medicare set-aside, um, and that Medicare set-aside was indemnified. And so the plaintiff in this case has a small Medicare set-aside. If and when ever challenged in the future that that was insufficient, she has an indemnified Medicare set-aside. And so uh, she is protected. Um, but that was a that was an issue that was not easily navigated. Now, there's not one way to handle a case. And so I'm really interested, Ross, as to how would you have handled the situation? You know, and here's the thing about how to handle these situations is that it's all about an assumption of risk. So if you assume that you have an injury victim or a plaintiff who, you know, is competent, is following the whole discussion of if you do this, you know, you can argue that there's no appearance of a cost shift. 
you know, the chances of Medicare actually denying post-settlement injury-related care, they would have the right to do it. They don't always do it. You know, actually, we've seen an increase, though, in situations where Medicare is questioning post-settlement treatment because of reporting, but it's not consistently done. So I would advise the plaintiff's attorney and the plaintiff, I would say, look, you know, you can, the most conservative approach is to put aside a portion of whatever it is you're getting in pocket for an MSA. And of course, you would get it based on a review of the medical records and everything. You would look at the ratio between total potential case value, net settlement, and you would come up with a, you know, a figure that you could defend if it was ever questioned. On the flip side, though, too, you can look at the Sally Stalkup memo, which says that you know, each attorney should individually assess is the settlement cost-shifting future injury-related medical. So I would tell them that under this fact pattern, this might be a case where you can make a compelling argument that the settlement is insufficient to fund futures. And I would essentially let them choose how much or how little risk they wish to assume. But the key is that they're making an informed decision. So that is, you know, kind of there is no one-size-fits-all solution when it comes to futures in a liability case. And a clear understanding of what the pros and cons of various approaches, I think, is really key. So that, that's what I would do, Barry and Jean. Ross, I agree. Me, I'd probably put away some money just to be safe. Ross, I agree with you. And, you know, sometimes... I love your comment about, about making sure the plaintiff is educated. Um, I think sometimes plaintiff lawyers maybe forget to sit down with their client and explain the, the global picture and the potential risk and what could happen if you don't have a Medicare set aside. There are many plaintiffs who are educated enough to take upon a risk, um, you know, right. To agree to take that risk. Um, some, however, may say, I just don't want to take the risk. What are my other options? Absolutely. So we always kind of think of it as the analogy of, you know, there's a speed limit on the highway. That speed limit is posted there. You might know that nobody ever patrols that area and you will never get a ticket. And But you're going to speak because you know that I don't think I'm going to get a ticket. You might also have people who say, oh my gosh, I've already have three tickets. I can't get another ticket. So therefore I'm going to follow that speed limit. But you're making a knowing decision of that speed limit is there, just like the Medicare Secondary Payer Act is out there. You know, payments prohibited, whether it's workers' comp, liability, or no fault. So people just need to think about it and decide what they're comfortable with. Right. And discuss it early. I think that's been our theme throughout right. the day, right? Is the time to do this is not while you're working on the final number at, at settlement. It is, you know, when these issues uh, pop up and you know you have somebody that is a Medicare beneficiary and that you have to walk through all of these pieces. And to Barry's point, I, I do think on the liability side, there, you know, a lot of the attorneys are just not as steeped in all of these issues. And I think some of them aren't even aware um, to our earlier point about um, the, the Section 111 reporting, for instance. They're just not steeped enough to know that there are consequences of, of how that all falls into place. And so I, I do think um, to all of our points, the more you can talk about it, the earlier on, the, the quicker the um, settlement process will go for everybody. Right. Anything we forgot to talk about, ladies? 
I, you know what? We can talk about this stuff forever, but I think we've covered the uh, back patterns we wanted to address, and it was great to learn some things from Barry and Sean. It's always wonderful to hear your input. So thank you, Rasa. Thank you, Barry, for joining us. Um, thank you, everyone else, for setting aside some time for us today. And we look forward to seeing you on the next podcast. Thank you, John. Thank you, Barry. Thank you, Ross. Thank you, Jim.